0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the journalists at Yahoo Finance tell us that a Connecticut McDonald's charging $18 for a combo meal has sparked a nationwide debate on rising prices in the fast food industry. The outrage, readers are told, is partly attributed to a recent rise in the minimum wage. Spoiler, we never hear about any other parts attributed. Businesses like McDonald's, the story goes, quote, have already raised their prices in anticipation of the wage hike, close quote. Were there any other responses available to them? Don't ask. We're moving on to how it isn't just that poor working Joes will have to pay more for a Big Mac, but also that there will be layoffs of fast food employees. We meet Jose and Jim, who say they thought higher wages would be good, considering the decline in tipping and increasing living costs. Alas, no, Yahoo explains, quote, the reality was harsher. The wage increase, while beneficial for some, has resulted in job losses for others. Leading to a complex mix of gratitude and resentment among affected workers, close quote. the takeaway quote the debate over the appropriate balance between fair wages and sustainable business practices remains unresolved. Close quote. The Yahoo finance piece does go on to lament the mental stress associated with economic uncertainty not for owners, evidently, and to offer the wise counsel that those troubled might consider, quote, establishing a substantial savings account and making smart investments, close quote. Elite reporters seem so far removed from the daily reality of the bulk of the country's workers that this doesn't even sound strange to them. A raise in wages for fast food employees means fast food employees have to lose their jobs. That's just, you know, economics. Union what? Profiteering who? The only operative question is which low-wage workers need to suffer more? We'll get a different view on raising the minimum wage from Sebastian Martinez-Hickey, researcher for the EARN, Economic Analysis and Research Network, team at the Economic Policy Institute. Also on the show, a largely unspoken part of media's wage conversation is the whole sector of workers whose pay rates are based in enslavement. Yeah. In 2015, Counterspin learned about tipped wages from Saru Jayaraman, co-founder of the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United and director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. We'll hear part of that relevant conversation today as well. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. It is partly due to corporate news media's misleading, invidious presentation of the minimum wage as about individuals, who's working these jobs, why don't they get skills to move up to something better, that we have trouble seeing and asking societal questions instead. Like, why should a country have jobs whose full-time workers don't earn enough to not be impoverished? Why is a company whose waged employees require public assistance to keep their heads above water deemed a successful company? Why is it a fight to get wages higher than they were generations ago when profits are not likewise constrained? The story today is that despite the misinformation, many people do know what the minimum wage means to individuals and families, certainly, but also to society as a whole. And they're fighting through that often skewed public debate to get, most recently, a raise in the minimum wage in some 22 states. Sebastian Martinez-Hickey has been tracking wage issues as a researcher for the Economic Analysis and Research Network team at the Economic Policy Institute. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Sebastian
1: Martinez-Hickey. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here.
0: Well, let's start with the news that you just wrote about on the minimum wage increases that went into effect January 1st. For those asleep under rocks since the 1950s, that might sound like it means some fast food workers will get more pocket change to take home to mom. But that's not an accurate or useful picture of who minimum wage workers are, or what the effects of a lift in that wage might mean. So tell us about the scope of these new increases. Who who do they reach? And then what does your analysis suggest that the various impacts of this could be?
1: As you mentioned, 22 states increased their minimum wage in January, in addition to 38 cities and counties that increased their minimum wages above and beyond their state minimum wages. And, these increases are happening all over the country it 's happening in big urban coastal states like New York and California, but also rural states like Nebraska and South Dakota, according to our analysis, these increases are going to reach almost ten million workers, and in total, these workers are going to gain almost seven billion dollars in wages over the course of the next year. You asked about you know who these workers are we 're not just talking about workers that work at the federal minimum wage, which is still stuck at $7.25. Right. We're really talking about low-wage workers as a group. So if you think about workers that are earning, for example, less than $15 an hour, there's more than 17 million of those workers in the United States. More than 60% of those workers are older than 24. So most of these people are adults. They are most likely like the primary breadwinners in their households. There's also a a misconception that uh, minimum wage or these low wage workers are just part time workers, Mm -hmm. when in fact, most of these workers are full time workers. In addition, in other ways, low wage workers just represent ordinary working class people in the United States. They tend to disproportionately be women. They also tend to disproportionately be black and Hispanic workers, Mm -hmm. which means that when minimum wages are increased, it's a force for gender and racial equity they are also parents. More than a quarter of the people who are getting raises from the minimum wage increases are parents, which means that their wages obviously have to cover the needs of their children as well. People who are closer or below the poverty line, almost two-fifths of the people who are receiving increases are at 200% or less of the federal poverty line. And I use that benchmark because that includes people who are officially poor, but also a lot of people who we know are struggling to make ends meet, even if they are not technically poor. Right,
0: right. Or shifting things against one another. You know, maybe they don't qualify as poor this month, but that's because they're shortchanging their health care or something else. Exactly. Well, I appreciate your pointing out that we're not talking about the federal minimum wage, which is still $7.25 an hour. So it isn't a blanket lift. It varies a lot, as you've said, from place to place. You know, so in other words, it's not corporations saying, hey, we're making profits and so we're going to lift all our wages. It's really a matter of local and state-level political action and organizing that has got us to these raises.
1: Yeah. In the last couple of years, low-wage workers have experienced historic wage growth compared to what has been the normal trend over the course of the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. But it means it's also really important that states and localities take action to increase their minimum wages so that it locks in the benefits that workers are experiencing, I would argue, temporarily.
0: Well, as I said, I I think the presentation of the minimum wage as a thing that just faces some workers actively detracts from our understanding of society-wide impacts. And I, I guess I'd like to ask you, how is it good for me, even if I don't work a minimum wage job? how is it good for me to see the minimum wage lifted in states and communities? There's a broader mm-hmm. impact.
1: Yeah, there definitely is. I'll make a couple points. One is that what empirical research shows is that the minimum wage doesn't just lift wages for people that are uh, below you know, the new minimum wage threshold. It also has some spillover effects for workers who are above the new threshold. So this happens because employers are trying to keep their wage ladders consistent as the entire wage distribution moves up a little bit, and it usually impacts people around 15% above the new threshold. So that isn't affecting everyone, but it is an, uh, an additional benefit that comes from the minimum wage. But in terms of uh, society at large and the economy at large, we know that low-wage workers spend a lot more of their money in their local economies compared to high-income earners. So when you put money in the pockets of low-wage workers through a minimum wage increase, you get this beneficial effect where people are spending more money in the economy. And this is one of the channels by which, you know, critics of the minimum wage will say that when you increase the minimum wage, it's going to either force businesses out of business or make them lay off lots of workers. And we don't see that in the most high-end research that uh, has been done on this topic, and it's been studied a lot in economics. And one of the reasons is that there are channels like these by which the economy can adjust to becoming more equitable through a minimum wage increase.
0: Well, I'm going to bring you back to that, but I just wanted to take a little step here to say that listeners will know that we often hear about the importance of pegging wages to inflation. And, uh, and what's important about that? What's the role that inflation is paying here in relation to this wage increase?
1: Yes. So most of the states that have increases this year are doing so because their minimum wage policies automatically make adjustments to price increases over the course of the last year. This is a really important step because it keeps the minimum wage from eroding in terms of its purchasing power. It's particularly a good thing if you think that the alternative is simply allowing the minimum wage to stagnate indefinitely, which is basically what we've done with the federal minimum wage. The federal minimum wage has not been raised since 2009, And because of price increases over the intervening period, that means that the federal minimum wage is worth 30 percent, more than 30 percent less than it was in 2009.
0: Listeners are going to hear today some of the years ago but lamentably still relevant conversation that I had with Saru Jayaraman on tipped wages. And I know that you think about that as well, but you recognize, in other words, these increases in the minimum wage come in a context. They're not a golden ticket to an equitable economy, that there are other things that need to happen. So, I mean, broadly, how do you contextualize? It's it's important. It's Lives are going to change, but it's not the end of the road.
1: Yeah, of course not. And uh, you mentioned the TIPS minimum wage, which at the federal level still sits at $2.13 an hour, it's which crazy. is crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, insanely low. And we know that we can compare, for example, bartenders, a stereotypical tipped position. We can compare bartenders who live in states that use the federal tipped minimum to states that have gotten rid of the tipped minimum. And we know that the workers that have the lower tipped minimum wage experience more poverty. So it is a policy with very real consequences for uh, working people. But in terms of other important tools for creating a more equitable economy, I would mm-hmm. mention uh, paid sick leaves. So universal paid sick leave, clearly a really important priority for making uh, working people healthy and safe in their jobs. We see uh, advocates combining the minimum wage and paid sick leave in ballot measures in a couple states. So this year, there are ballot measures in Alaska and Missouri, which are combining minimum wage increases and paid sick leave uh, Access because they know that these are two issues that are so important to working people. The other really important thing I would raise is making sure that there is adequate enforcement of wage theft and other labor violations. Because even with a strong minimum wage policy, if there are too many loopholes where employers can take money, exploit their workers without fear of penalties or adequate enforcement then it really undermines the success of a strong minimum wage policy. And related to that, it's also really important to continue to pursue meaningful labor law reform. Making sure that every worker has access to a union if they want it is a really important tool for making sure that our labor standards are enforced adequately.
0: Well, one final question. I, I do blame news media, not just because it's my job, but actually from my heart, um, because... We are so relentlessly sold this idea of an economy and a society of makers and takers. And it's such corrosive nonsense, you know. But I know that when some folks hear the idea that we are going to give some workers a raise, that is going to lead pundits, whether they're on TV or at your dinner table, to say, well, who are we taking it from? You know, someone must be getting less if some people are getting more. And I wonder sort of broadly how you as an economist grapple with or redirect that kind of framing, but then also just are there things that you think that news reporters could do differently that might make these issues more accessible and understandable to to folks around minimum wage?
1: Yes, that's a great question. A couple of things to raise is, as I mentioned earlier, what the economic research shows is that there are many channels by which a minimum wage increase can benefit the whole economy without being the zero-sum game that uh, it is often depicted of being. It's not simply a battle between, you know, small businesses and and greedy workers on, on the two sides. What economic research shows is that there are channels in terms of small price increases, decreased profits for businesses, uh, as well as productivity increases that come from when workers are paid more, they tend to have less turnover, they tend to be more invested in their job. And these are all things that in total have shown to uh, not have the negative consequences that are sometimes attributed to minimum wage increases. Another point I would like to make is that minimum wages continue to be a really popular policy throughout the country. I mentioned earlier how the increases this year are occurring in wealthy urban states. They're happening in very rural states. It's happening throughout the country. Basically, when ordinary people are given the chance to have their opinion on the minimum wage, they are broadly supportive of it. The places where you don't see progress on the minimum wage, it's because our politics or our institutions hold back the popular will of ordinary people. And obviously, you see that most clearly in Congress and the holdup in terms of the federal minimum wage. But another way that this is really important is in terms of states that preempt cities and counties from setting their own minimum wage. There are so many examples of cities and counties in the South and in the Midwest, mostly, that have tried to set their minimum wage to an adequate level because they know that that's what they want for their communities. That's what's good for their economies. And then they're preempted from doing so by state legislatures that don't actually represent the communities that, uh, that want the minimum wage increase. So I think that talking about this issue in terms of who is has the ability to set their own minimum wages is also really important. We've been
0: speaking with Sebastian Martinez-Hickey, researcher with EARN, the Economic Analysis and Research Network at the Economic Policy Institute. They're online at epi.org. Sebastian Martinez-Hickey, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Thank you, Janine. As
0: you read elite media coverage of what harm or help may accrue from some workers now getting maybe $15 or $20 an hour, it can be easy to forget, if you're in a position to do so, that many workers in this country earn on paper $2.13 an hour. We spoke about the tipped wage a few years back with Saru Jayaraman, co-founder of the Restaurant Opportunities Center United and author of the books Behind the Kitchen Door and Forked, a new standard for American dining. The tipping system is not just a wage. It's an attitude about the relationship of server to consumer. As the Washington Post's Richard Cohen put it, quote, I like to reward, but occasionally I like to punish. Close quote. Jayaraman explained that Cohen's view is historically rooted and legally ingrained.
2: I think most people know almost nothing at all about this issue, including legislators in the highest levels of office. We've had to do a lot of education with people on the issue. And I'll say, even me myself, until about 10 years ago, really beginning to work in this industry and with workers across the country knew very little myself. I think the big thing people should know is that it is the second largest and fastest growing sector of our economy but pays the absolute lowest paying wages in the country. And uh, that is due to the money, power and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association, which leads the Fortune 500 chains, restaurant chains in our country and whose power dates back over 100 years to the emancipation of the slaves. Um, when they essentially first fought for the right to not pay workers anything, especially former slaves who were the first tipped workers in our country, not pay them anything and let them live on customer tips. And there's just such a a great deal of misinformation about who those workers are today even. You know, there's such a misperception that the Restaurant Association likes to promote that these are very well-paid, tipped workers, white guys working in fancy fine dining restaurants. When, in fact, the vast majority of tipped workers in America, 70%, in fact, are women who work at IHOP and Applebee's and Olive Garden and earn a median wage of $9 an hour, including tips, and suffer from three times the poverty rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce and the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States because they are forced to live in large part on tips rather than receiving a wage from their employer.
3: Well, some of the defenses of tipping that are that are being brought out now uh, really reflect that kind of futile um, attitude. Richard Cohen at The Washington Post writes, quote, I like to reward, but occasionally I like to punish, close quote. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and it, it really gets at something, I think, at a kind of the, the baseline and and, it, and telling you, hearing you say the origins of it really are. It really does come from that kind of attitude that people should serve at your pleasure.
2: Um, That's right. And let me be clear, because, you know, what I really appreciate about your show and program is, you know, really clearing up what maybe other media sources have conflated. You know, our fight, our campaign is not actually at this minute to eliminate tipping altogether. That's a huge misconception. We are trying to eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers, which this industry has gotten away with for over a hundred years. The the true history is that tipping originated in Europe when it came to the United States in the late 1850s. There was a massive anti-tipping movement so great that five states passed bans on tipping. And two industries, the restaurant industry and the Pullman Train Company, squashed that movement and demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything and let them live on customer tips. And that idea that the restaurant industry in particular could not pay its workers a wage and let them live on customer tips was codified into the very first minimum wage law as part of the New Deal which gave tipped workers the right to a $0 minimum wage. And we've gone from $0 in 1938 to a whopping $2.13 an hour, which is the federal minimum wage for tipped workers in our country. Now, there are seven states that have completely eliminated that system and demand that the restaurant industry actually pay its workers a full wage and let tips be on top of that. California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska all demand that the restaurant industry pay a full wage and let tips be on top. And so our campaign, our effort, has been to eliminate that lower wage for tipped workers, that two-tiered system that's essentially legalized gender pay inequity because it's mostly women living on the lower wage. Our fight is to eliminate that lower wage for tipped workers everywhere across the country, not at this minute to eliminate tipping. There are restaurants that have chosen to follow our lead and eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers in their restaurants by eliminating tipping. And if they're doing it in a transparent way that makes their workers whole, then we are fully in support of that. But right now we feel that, you know, as long as we're talking about minimum wages in this country of ten and twelve and fifteen dollars an hour, that's actually not enough to live on anywhere in this country. And so tips are absolutely necessary at this moment on top of a wage to get workers closer to something livable. But what we don't want is what we have right now, which is that those tips can be counted against wages so that, in essence, most workers in this industry, in this country, are living almost entirely on customer power, on that sort of power to punish and or reward, rather than on a base wage from their employer like every other industry has to provide.
3: Well, let me ask you as a point of information, because when outlets like the New York Times and USA Today print articles about the tipped wage... As a matter of course, they get a letter from a representative of the National Restaurant Association right. that says no one gets a sub minimum wage because if wait staff don't get enough from tips, plus that two dollars and thirteen cents an hour to get up to minimum wage, the employer tops it off. Now is that yeah. the law but not the case?
2: <laughs> That's exactly not the case. And so the US Department of Labor reports an eighty percent eight zero eighty percent violation rate with regard to this issue of employers having to make up the difference hour by hour and ensure that tips actually bring you to the full minimum wage. I mean, you know, I feel for employers, it's an extraordinary burden to have to ensure hour by hour. It takes, you know, a lot of accounting and HR, which most small businesses don't have. It's a tremendous burden on small businesses. And I will say, actually, this is partly why so many employers have started to move in our direction. Why we're seeing so much industry shift on this issue is because, Even some employer-side attorneys have come out saying this is tremendous liability and burden on small businesses in particular that have to calculate this difference or get sued. So it doesn't happen. It's a huge liability. But really fundamentally on top of that, I want to say even if there was 100% compliance, which this issue, which there obviously isn't, it still wouldn't work. Because when you're a woman who lives off of tips for the majority of your income, as 6 million women in America do. You have to tolerate whatever a customer might do to you, however they may touch you or treat you or talk to you, because the customer is always right, because the customer is paying all of your income, truly, because your wage is so low. If you get 2 or 3 or $4 an hour, as it is in 43 states, your wage is so low, it goes entirely to taxes, and you're living completely off your tips. So if you're living completely off your tips, you're completely dependent on the whims of the customer, and you have to tolerate this kind of behavior. And our research shows it goes a step further. We found that management in states with lower wages for tipped workers encourages women to objectify themselves, wear tighter clothing, show greater cleavage in order to get more money in tips at three times the rate as they do in states like California, where a woman actually gets a full wage and doesn't have to rely on the whims of a customer. I mean, you know, that absurd comment by the Washington Post reporter uh, you know, in any other industry, any other service profession that we interact with daily, from retail to getting gas to anything that we do that, where we interact with customer service, if we're not pleased with service, we have the right to go to management and complain. And that is how it should be in this industry, too. We have the right to go to management and complain. But a woman's ability to pay her bills and not have to sell her body and feed her family should not be dependent on the whims of customers. It should be dependent on her employer who supposedly employs her and has the responsibility to ensure that she's actually paid for the work that she does.
0: That was Saru Jayaraman speaking with Counterspin back in 2015. And you can hear that full conversation and find the transcript on FAIR.org. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the media watch group FAIR. Find our work online at FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noise. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.